0: WQXR, in conversation.
1: My guest today is bass baritone Devon Tynes. He's the co-creator of Black Clown. It's an adaptation of a 1931 Langston Hughes poem with a very robust opening direction. A dramatic monologue to be spoken by a pure-blooded Negro in the white suit and hat of a clown to the music of a piano or an orchestra. And as you listen to that, you ask some questions about who is this clown and who is this audience? Who is the performance for? What are we supposed to take away from that? So, naturally, Times when I talk about that. Audiences and structure and performance and what it means to actually be an audience and what it means to be before an audience. And then we tackle, of course, the spectrum of musicality. And we ask what we're supposed to do with the legacy of greats as we challenge those legacies. And lastly, we hit on Tynes' Quarantine mixtape. I'm James Bennett. This is WQXR in conversation with Devon Tynes. So just walk us through uh, The Black Clown, this piece, based on a work by Langston Hughes what's the inception of of your of your piece the black clown
0: so the inception of the black clown came at a time in my life where i think i really needed to focus or figure out what i wanted to do with my life where i wanted it to go next i had graduated harvard university in 2009 and i was involved in a lot of different arts administration and arts-related jobs. And then again, one of those jobs was singing at the National Shrine in DC, which is the seat of the Catholic Church. Being in a church of that sort, you know, you're really an employee. You're kind of there to do your thing. You're not really taking part in the worship or religiosity of that space um you're kind of left to your own thought devices especially like during the homily you've got 12 minutes of like free thought or going to the bathroom and one sunday in this free time i thought you know we're here we sing these palestrina masses we sing these incredible Jusquin things and also more modern interpretations of religious text and um two things are happening right now i'm missing my church at home in virginia about an hour and a half away the the gospel and black baptist church that i grew up in and i i want to be singing something that is more me you know at harvard i sang with the harvard radcliffe collégium musicum which is a pretty sizable choir that sings Renaissance polyphony and Beethoven masses and kind of the whole spectrum of, you know, the Western canon of classical choral music. And I played the violin for 14 years and I kind of like had a really deep understanding of Western musical modes, Um, but always was trying to find how they interacted with the stuff I grew up with and the stuff that I listened to, how this mixed together. So I was like, I need to sing something that is more me. I remember typing an email to my friend and collaborator, Michael Schachter, and saying, like, I need something that has, like, soul and whimsy and is a really direct statement that I feel I need to make. Very fortuitously, his wife had just bought him a full works volume of Hughes, and um, in that is a volume called The Negro Mother which is a very unique grouping of poems. Hughes kind of invented a new structure for these poems where there are two columns, the mood and the poem. And in the mood column, Hughes kind of gives instructions for how the poem should be performed. And in the poem column, Hughes in an incredibly deft way for the Black Clown poem um, shows, shows succinctly and clearly, all of African-American history and experience in America. And you might think, like, how does someone do that in two pages, a couple of stanzas? But that's part of his genius to clearly to still represent, honestly, somewhat symbolically, all of that journey and the whole idea even of double consciousness and the performance of race. To see this all in one clear statement was earth shattering for me. You know, it was kind of like, wow. All the thoughts that I've had about the complications of my Blackness and white spaces, of bringing together my Black roots in music with my Western canon roots in music, all of that is kind of uh, given space and, and even illuminated by this kind of work. And I was like, it's got to also be doing this kind of thing for other people. So we got to share this with other people. So it became really important that it, we realized that poem. It first started as an idea for a song cycle, um and then we kind of kept leaning into like no there's a lot more here and hughes said there was a lot more there because of these kind of stage directions in the mood column so then we were like okay our project is to as fully realize this hughes poem as possible so take all of his stage directions all of his words don't change don't add any words and just do this document justice
1: You had mentioned how you're taking your understanding of these quote-unquote Western musical modes and fusing them with the roots music that you were raised on and and understand and still feel close to. Can you just kind of get into the mechanics?
0: The project itself, it's called Recital Number One Mass. And it's really an embodiment of some of the work that I'm really engaged in, which is taking accessible templates, especially templates that are known by the majority audience, and filling them with things that are not expected in that context. And that's with an eye toward showing that, you know, modes of expression that you are familiar with also connect to modes of expression that you are not familiar with. So people from different races and cultures and perspectives have a lot to say about the things you care about. And a lot of times those things are similar and overlap. And sometimes they're very different and can enrich your understanding or experience. So, for example, um, there's there's the mass structure. And I've kind of changed the order a little bit to, to my own understanding of a story. But, um, you know, a Kyrie, a Gloria, a Credo, a Sanctus, an Annus Dei, a Benedictus. And, and then assigning musics to those things... That um, I feel like do the same work. So we do an on-use day, like moving to the idea of like, Lord, take away my sins, or through some sort of sacrifice, we need transformation. And I pair that with a new composition by Taishan Sori, where he sets uh the spiritual swing low, sweet chariot um it's one of a of a triptych of spirituals where i asked him to reimagine some spirituals in a way that kind of takes their aesthetic cap off and you get to see the inside meaning of them and i i think a lot of spirituals are really kind of horrific if you fully engage what they're asking for, you know swing low sweet chariot is kind of it's kind of a suicide note it's saying, "Come Lord, come sweet chariot, come take me home, and you can only imagine what sort of place someone has to be in, you know an enslaved person in a field or any context connected to that at their wits end, at their physical end, their emotional end, just saying, you know what, God, just come take me. And so his piece, and in Taishan's incredible way, um, just kind of like rips the sheen off of something that we think is so, you, you know, swing low, sweet chariot, and brings it into something that's swing
1: low.
0: And continues in his amazing mode of just kind of refracting ideas to show this deeper meaning. Um, But I think a good example that I was excited about in a recent recording session is finding the connections between kind of like more free R&B and gospel interpretations with Bach ideas. And I think I found that it's not that you're trying to place one aesthetic on another one, but through honest vocal Support or freedom, you can see how how people through time have reached different aesthetic ideals. So there's there's a cadence at the end of Machidi, and in a very classical way. <laughs> and if I get really quiet with that, and I try to let my voice as as some good technique informs, always keeping it spinning, always keeping it rolling. And if I take that kind of to a further point, there's even a more free role in it. So in that, I found in the studio, if I let my voice go free, I naturally create roulades. I naturally create, you know, these turning figures that are all throughout and very codified for early music but if you lean into it in a certain way you get r&b so it's it's all like they're all related so yeah i'm really loving allowing myself to go to other places in terms of aesthetic presentation and see where things really do connect and line up at the start
1: Who is Black Clown for? Is that for everybody listening to it? Is that for someone who is attuned to each of the things that you're kind of pointing out? I can't help but think that it's for you.
0: Yeah, I think this question of who is it for? Who is the audience? is critical. You know, if you're going to make something with an eye to communicating, you have to know, if not clarify, who you're communicating with and to. But I think it really does have to deal with the intent of the project. So coming into the black clown idea and being honest and honoring of what the actual intention of that project is, it's not just me in that case. You know, it's not just me saying, I want to say this thing. I want to free myself up to do this thing. It is me interacting with Hughes, and since Hughes's text, Hughes's intention is the context of the entire project, we have to excavate who he wanted the audience to be. I had a really amazing conversation with playwright Jeremy O'Harris, and he got a little wonderfully specific about, you know, the import to, to translate if you're taking Hughes's text to also take his intended audience. And I think Hughes, if you look at his life, if you look at his work, he's always operating in this space between the double consciousnesses, one being, you know, of a Black mind or one that might be true or connected to oneself as a Black person, and one that is in a performative nature in order to connect to whiteness or protect oneself from whiteness. Um, So I think a lot of his um, work is intended to teach, show, open up possibility of consideration of the majority audience of looking at, you know, Black or minority culture. Um, But I think it's twofold because of the modes that he uses. So I think a lot of the work is instructive. And I think a lot of the work is also beyond honoring it's kind of like rejoicing in in the modes of blackness there are you know utilizing jazz idiom utilizing certain iconography and such that come out of his lived experience in the harlem renaissance it's not like um, a white or majority audience always have access to understanding what those things are, but he is doing them justice in his own just kind of excavation and presentation of them. With A the Black Clown particularly, though, he's very clear about giving a clue to who the audience is. The poem starts, The Black Clown by Langston Hughes, a dramatic monologue to be spoken by a pure-blooded Negro in the white suit and hat of a clown to the music of a piano or an orchestra. And then the first words of the poem are, you laugh because I'm poor and black and funny. So in those words, he's implicating a white audience. And it's in a way, I think, to to show what his experience as the quote unquote black clown is. Um, you know, there's an entire middle, huge swath of the poem that we've come to call the history lesson. He walks through black history in America from the middle passage from the bringing of enslaved peoples to this land, all the way through modern protest movements, and even giving a space to look forward in time. But it's a presentation of a certain people's history and experience as done for another outside population to read. And I think two effects are possible when the audience is also twofold. You offer the opportunity for someone to engage an object that they normally do not, or give it the care that they normally do not. And in doing so with deafness and clarity, Um, you are honoring and you are giving space to and breath to and words to an experience for the people whose it is. So I really love the possibility and and the actuality that we've seen with audiences that, you know, I think majority or white audiences can come away um, having felt or engaged some things in a way that they have not before. And black audiences and audiences of color can come away seeing and having a sort of, I don't know, happiness or pride in that their history has been presented in the most beautiful way that we could think to do it.
1: That's really interesting because I wonder, given that Black Clown has been presented at mostly Mozart, or at Lincoln Center rather, and the, the context you just gave of what Hughes was trying to do, how he was trying to uplift you know, his people with these lyrical words vis-a-vis a white audience. Have you ever considered that in this context, Black Clown and mostly Mozart, that Black Clown is the Black Clown and mostly Mozart is the white audience?
0: Completely. That was part of the whole conversation from day one of when this piece was commissioned by and decided to be presented by the American Repertory Theater. And this showed itself most fully in marketing discussions when they wanted to say, who is coming to this? Who are we inviting to come to this? And I said, you know, I, I made this thing and we spent seven, eight years on the creation of it, not without being pretty understanding of the context. When I read this poem and it shocked me like lightning, it's because it's what I needed to say to the people that I felt didn't understand me and my context. So that was a lot of um, a lot of different versions of whiteness. I grew up in rural Northern Virginia and horse country, being kind of subjected to the necessity of preppiness and needing to prove one's status all the time, especially as a black person, in order to negate denigration by showing, you know, some sort of feigned equality. Um, All the way through uh, an institution like Harvard, where um, they're just extreme denizens of elitism and existing as a black person in that space is extremely performative because you're trying to like maybe get an education, but you're also needing to always prove like why you are and why you deserve to be in the room. So uh, feeling the pressure of that for the entirety of my life and then having the opportunity to say these words that give context and clarity to that experience, that was meant for the exact audience who paid for it, which is the white Cambridge elite audience and then connecting to the mostly Mozart Festival audience. I'm not ignorant of the fact that most major arts institutions are patronized by uh, majority and white audiences. That's exactly the point. And in a way it connects to my larger project as an artist, which I say is to Trojan horse the uh, lives and experiences of black and other people into spaces where they structurally have not been welcomed for so that they have the same attention and care that other pieces of art have been given. Um, it's It's an act of trying to show um equality, trying to demonstrate that. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Abyssinian Mass does hold the place against Beethoven's Misa Solemnus. They really need to be engaged on the same plane. They need to be given the same, you know, music theory and historical contextualization and respect, basically. And in doing that, showing the equality between the musical products of certain cultures, you can only extend that there is equality and fairness and um, a shared want to just be a part of expressing humanity that is shared between all peoples.
1: So let's talk about that. I mean how do you, how do you as an artist or I guess you as a listener as a contributor to this classical ecosystem not just you but I guess anybody. How do you think or what do you think is the best way for us to take somebody like Mozart the namesake of the festival and reconcile the godlike status that the culture has bestowed on him with the need to engage with these other works, as you said, on the same plane, right? starts almost this Ozymandian figure. You know, he's larger than life even beyond, you know, the music itself. So how does one responsibly engage with his music now, right? It's like, you can't say you're giving it equal time because the way we've engaged with Mozart's work, you know, since the time of like, you know, his death has been on again, like this deified like level. What's the responsible way to present his music alongside someone who is, you know, lesser programmed or willingly, you know, forgotten.
0: I mean, I think there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to dismantle a structure or transform its use and in the same vein, I guess I could walk through a few options. One could be um, destabilizing or opening up what the aesthetic expectation of Mozart is. You know, it's a German, Germanic, Western canon person writing things that are always presented in a way that is aesthetically of that world. That's wonderful. But not all the people that exist in the world that should perhaps have access and connection to Mozart can enter it through that aesthetic lens it's kind of like you're jamming you're jamming material down someone's throat in a language that they don't even understand and i mean that literally and figuratively so there needs to be an attention to points of entry and i really do think that can come in terms of style and i think that people should let go of um to a certain degree um, barriers of including certain styles, you know, just as I demonstrated with the Bach, just through pure actual attention to vocal production, there's, there's an immediate technical, physical connection between early music and r and that's undeniable. That literally happens when you support a voice rotating in a wave. Like, you know, that 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 is not even a stylistic choice. That's just a physical property. So those sorts of things are a little bit less deniable. And so that freedom should be shown in how things are interpreted. And further to that point, performers, who you see on the stage. I had a conversation with a composer who was involved in kind of my first one-man show project. We created this uh, kind of series of little operas that all are called American Gothic, where we talk about darker sides of the American dream. And I had different composers write things on you know edges of society that we don't want to look at. Um, So so this this composer, I asked him to engage in a piece on dealing with prison. There was a lot of um, really interesting New York Times pieces at that time on the school to prison pipeline and just exploring, you know, the existence of Black people within the prison system. So I asked him about this. I said, you know, read these articles and tell me what you think about a piece. And he came back to me to say, I don't know if I can do this because I don't think my work should ever be political. And in that moment, I thought, well, perhaps we can't be collaborators right now because I explained to him, whenever I walk on stage, you know, in Alice Tully Hall, which I've done before to sing Rameau or to sing Mozart's Requiem, I'm a Black person. The literal physical act of me placing my foot across that threshold and being seen by this particular audience um, is an act of countering is an act of existing in in opposition to what is expected so just by that very act of being someone of a different context interpreting this music holding this music you immediately are caused to reframe or start to destabilize your your built and held and codified if not stricturing and prison making expectations
1: no, that's a good point. I mean, I, I often, you know, feel the same way in being part of the the classical, right, content world, putting stuff up, just words without any images. And then you have somebody click and it's like, oh, black guy. And you're like, yeah, it's mm. me. It's like you're living, mm. right, not in a constant state of agitation, but a constant state of agitating, you know. And uh, as as soprano, yeah. uh, Laura Michelle, uh, pointed out, like that itself is an act a profound act of uh, of protest.
0: Yeah, literally existing in spaces where people don't expect you to be interestingly enough can be an act of protest.
1: What's on your quarantine? mixtape what's the playlist been getting you through whoo
0: my quarantine mixtape has been you know all over the all over the map i mean i i always love a wide range of things but um i think you know given the time and space to just have more time to deep listen um i've been moving even broader over the map even today i've been listening to brooklyn-based uh rap artist kamau he has a really awesome song called Rockaway that, um, you know, connects to a part of my life in New York in a way that I love. And then this morning while emptying the dishwasher, I was listening to uh, Corelli Trio Sonatas. And still finding, you know, some of them, some of them are a bop, like certain gavats and stuff. Like they really go hard. <laughs> like you can dance to them. You could twerk to them, even if you try. Um, but um, onward to just revisiting some of the warhorses of playing in orchestras as a as a kid, Sibelius Violin Concerto. You know, I love the Zubin Mehta Midori recording it's just it's one of like the greatest hits in my mind so just living there for a little bit and then going to like Chloe and Hallie, and just hearing you know um their their young fledgling incredible vocalization move through different black styles um so I'm, I'm always ping-ponging around and trying to find connections but also you know keeping myself on my toes a little bit with listening Devon,
1: thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Black Clown was presented at the 2019 Mostly Most Art Festival. But don't worry if you missed it. Thanks to the digital conveniences provided by WQXR, FM 105.9, and WQXR.org, and Lincoln Center, we'll be making excerpts of that performance available to you, the listener. This episode was produced by me, James Bennett, with Max Fine and Eileen Delahunty. Our engineer was George Wellington, and our executive producer was Lucas Crone Grimberg.